Today's Canada Crush interview is with Beth Jansen, the CEO of the Academy of Canadian Cinema and Television. This is a feel-good Canadian story on so many different levels. Beth spent close to 20 years in New York City, where she rose to prominence as the executive director of the Tribeca Film Institute. But now she's back in Canada and she's leading the charge to revamp and revitalize the Academy. We sat down in Beth's offices and I start this interview by asking her to tell us a bit about the work she did in the U.S. and how she plans to use that experience in the development of new and exciting programming here in Canada. We then dive into topics around gender equality and expanding the opportunities for Canadians in all forms of media. This is an exciting time for Canadians in the arts as we drive for better recognition and more viewing of Canadian content. And having Beth's voice as a significant contributor is spectacular. Welcome home, Beth. If you enjoy this interview, and if you'd love to hear about other great Canadians, please head over to canadacrush.com to listen to our other podcasts. Please be sure to sign up to our email list and we'll keep you current as new podcast interviews go live to air. As well, please like and follow us on Facebook at Facebook forward slash Canada Crush Podcast, and we'll keep you informed of all sorts of great Canadiana throughout Canada's 150 celebration. But for now, here's Beth Jansen, our inspiring Canadian, doing exceptional things. Let's get started. It's with great pleasure and gratitude that I welcome Beth Jansen to Canada Crush. Welcome, Beth. Thank you. From your Canadian roots to a very successful career in the United States and now back to Canada as the CEO of the Academy of Canadian Cinema and Television. And we're going to dig into all of that. But I sort of want to start back a little bit in time. Tell me a little bit about where'd you grow up? I grew up in the West Island of Montreal. So... Um, I was in Beaconsfield and Baderfe. Um, in between there, I actually lived in South Africa for four years. And when did when did you get the introduction into the arts? From a very early age. I mean, I was always writing books and telling stories and singing and uh, acting out. I always kind of did that stuff. But in high school, uh, my high school in Montreal was called St. George's High School. Um, and it was more of an artistic high school. And so that's where I really was able to develop my love of music. And did you take that into university? So did you go through arts programs in university? Yep, I did. I went to University of British Columbia, but I ended up studying at York University. I ended up studying uh, acting in their uh, conservatory program there. Um, and ironically or not, I never acted after university you didn't <laughs> no I kind of went through that whole thing and was like yep this isn't a really fun life <laughs> was there an awkward stage or what 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 was it that no I think I just realized that um acting didn't really go deep enough for me like to keep me really interested I was always interested in the stories and the telling of the stories but I think I I know I quickly realized that you know Telling a story is, there's a lot more to think about if you are directing or, um, you know, producing, you know, you're sort of looking at the whole thing and putting all the pieces together instead of just, um, you know, acting one role. And first job was? Uh, my first job was in New York City was 
giving out free tickets at the Delacorte Theater in Central Park. There really is nothing more terrifying as a young Canadian to have to tell a crazy New Yorker who's been waiting in line for six hours that they can only get one ticket. It was such an indoctrination into New York City. How did you you even get the job? I had just applied. I had applied. I was applying. Like I was, I was really aggressive about applying. At the, in those days, you wrote a letter, you mailed it, and you just said, "I'm interested in this." And I had um, the opportunity to intern with them, um, and that turned into this um, paying job. Fantastic! So you're giving out tickets. You're pissing off a lot of Americans because they can only get one as opposed to six. <laughs> Give me that from that point in time through to when you started with the Tribeca Film Festival in 2003. There's a gap there of six or seven years. Fill us in a little bit there. Yeah, so I ended up getting then uh, a job at the public theater, uh, not just in the summer, but um, in, in full time. I was an assistant in the managing director's office, and that was where I really learned all about things like budgeting and budget reconciliations and at the time there was a play called uh bringing the noise bringing the funk and that had just sort of uh that that had been like the chorus line for that um organization and uh so i was really learning a lot of nuts and bolts and business side of theater i eventually decide or i sort of got the opportunity to assist uh, an actor liev schreiber I became his personal assistant, basically, out of that experience. And that was, you know... What an experience. What an experience for a theater geek to be able to watch Liev Schreiber and to, like, to run lines with Liev in Hamlet. He's such a smart actor. Wow. It's incredible. And uh, he really, you know, understood the text in a way that, you know, as people who love Shakespeare, you only you dream of like being able to work with someone who loves the text that much. So what did you do from there when you were working with them as his personal assistant? Then how did you get from there to make the leap into the, to the Tribeca film Institute? So, um, Liev was going to shoot a, a film in, in, uh, the Netherlands, I think, or something like that. And he was going to be gone for three months. And I was like, well, I need a job and they wouldn't pay for me to go. And, uh, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't figure that out. And so he said, why don't you meet with the publicist who I had been working with, you know, about whether there's something at HBO. And so I ended up um, going in and meeting with Angela Tarantino. And she recommended me for this um, position in the documentary department. And I ended up you know, being hired there. And it was very, very different to go from like working for a, um, you know, pretty talented and up and coming star Mm -hmm. to being an assistant in the documentary programming department. Um, But do you remember also thinking at that time, that's where I want to be, where I've been is where I want to get back to? Yeah, of course. Like, I'm the sort of person that when I was the assistant, I just, I'm, I want to apologize to all my bosses because I was like, oh, it's so clear to me how you would do this right, you know? And um, I was quickly, you know, like, I just, I was impatient and I was all those things. Um, You're driven. I was driven. I was a really good worker, but I definitely was not shy about suggesting how something could be done better. Um, and, you know, I just, you know, Five minutes into my job, understood that I was working for Sheila Nevins, who was this doyen of, has basically created the modern documentary movement. And I 
instantly latched onto her and was like, oh my God, there's so much I can learn here. And I really did. I'd never met a woman like that before. And she just became this example for me of, of, you know, this uncompromising, um, idiosyncratic, incredibly successful, um, businesswoman, um, who also was dedicated to, was passionate about what she was doing. So, that was incredible. And I was I was at HBO for about three years. Um, I was there during 9-11. Um, and then after that, you know, I think everyone who was in New York in 9-11, I got married a week after in Montreal. And you just take stock of everything, obviously. Yeah. All the cliches are true. And then the Tribeca Film Institute was started the festival was started as a reaction to 2000 sorry to 9-11 from what i had read by and how cool is this robert de niro yeah it was it was and you know it was the first time the first tribeca film festival we were living in the west village and we did not go down there we did not go down anywhere near what they now call ground zero because like most new yorkers we were just trying to be respectful so what happened is that all the businesses down there started suffering in a major way. So Robert De Niro and his and his um, his business partners uh, Jane Rosenthal and her husband Craig Hackoff and um, Jennifer McGuire they all got together and they started to do these dinners downtown. So they would um, get friends together to come and have a dinner um, at a restaurant somewhere in Tribeca. Just to get people coming back to that so part of the So bring some city. energy back into the... Yeah. and out Good of, energy. Good energy, exactly. And out of that came this idea, well, why don't we do a film festival? That'll really bring a lot of people wow. down. So, um, I yeah, I was, uh, you know, I, I went there for the first time down, to, you know, to Battery Park City for the, uh, for, the, for the festival. And at the time I was working, I had left HBO to direct, to do programming for a... Um, festival that no longer longer exists now called the Newport International Film Festival in Rhode Island. And um, it was really run out of New York City, uh, but my husband had a connect in, connection to Rhode Island. So in Newport, so it was like a perfect combination um, for me. So uh, when you're when you work for a film festival, at least this is the way it worked 15 years ago, all and I'm sure it is now. Actually, all the all the programmers know each other, and they all go to the same festivals together. They all go to Sundance, and they all go to Berlin, and then they all go to Toronto. And um, so I got to know David Kwok, who was the director of programming at Tribeca at the time, and we became really good friends. And he called me and said, "I know you're at Newport, but um, I w- we want to start this program at Tribeca for filmmakers of color. Are you interested in?" you know, coming to uh, talk to us about it. Yeah, so David Kwok hired a middle-class white girl from Canada to run his diversity program um, with um, another guy named Sean Shodal, who um, was from Hawaii. And uh, we we took the mandate that was given to us by David Kwok and his co-head um, of the programming, uh, actually, I think she was director of the festival, Nancy Schaefer. I came in in November of... 20 of 2003 and we launched in april of 2004 and it instantly hit a nerve what made you change uh in 2015 when you left and became the founding director of uh, rent the runway which is a maybe you can tell us a little bit about it Mm -hmm. yeah it was um rent the runway foundation 
I left Tribeca because it was 11 years that I'd been there. Um, and I was just ready for new challenges, time for me to move on. And the thing about working in a festival world is that, you know, you have to, there's a cycle, right? So you can't leave just any time because you would be, you know, leaving someone in a lurch. So you have to sort of leave at a, at a right time. So I left at the end of 2015, um, sorry, 2014. Um, and then a friend of mine called me up and said, Rent the Runway, which is this uh, startup, is looking to try and um, help get more women into uh, the startup world. And they need some advice on creating a foundation. I thought I could be additive in, in sort of helping to guide them with that. In April of this year, it was announced 2016 that you were coming home as CEO of the Academy of Canadian Cinema and Television, succeeding Helga Stevenson. First question is, how does it feel to be back in Canada? It feels great. Um, it's a huge culture shock. I can't believe how much a culture shock it is. Really? Yeah. What, what, what differences? <laughs> I know. I mean, it's not like I left and wasn't here for 20 years. Like, my sister lives in Toronto. My parents lived in Montreal. Like, I was back multiple times a year. But, you know, I just, um, I think having had the experience of working as a young person in New York City and then getting married and then, you know, trying to raise a family. And I just... I think that we have so much in Canada that I was unaware of, and I think so many Canadians take it for granted. Did you know that before you came back? No. Or is this, this is now what you're experiencing being back? Yeah. Wow. Yep. Had you planned on coming home at any point in time? Nope. <laughs> so how did the position come about? I really was just, it was I was headhunted for it. I was doing fine. I mean, I was making good money. I was working my own schedule. I was, you know really kind of living the dream. And how long did the process take between the first time you were contacted and and then sort of bringing the job to fruition? I think I started talking to them in January uh, of 2016. Uh, and you started here in? In June. You've spoken publicly about the organization and rebranding in order to get Canadians to view more homegrown talent. The comment to me suggests that uh, we're not viewing enough home talent, homegrown talent. Uh, where's the problem stem from and how do you fix it? Well, in coming back uh, to Canada and in taking this job, I have been reading a lot about Canadian identity and struggling with the fact that, you know, I left and now I'm coming back. But I, I never felt like I wasn't Canadian when I was overseas. I was I'm, when I was in the States, I was always the Canadian. You know, I only became an American and. Uh, I guess three years ago. Um, and I was proud of the fact that I was Canadian. Um, I, I, I just think that there's a constant comparison to the US that really drives me crazy because... It, is it because it's a measure? Is it a measurement against the US? Is that... Are you suggesting that we're, we're, we're only as good as we can measure ourselves against the United States in the, in the particular field? That's what it feels like to me coming back. I don't believe that. You mm -hmm. know, I believe that we should have our own measurement tools for what is excellent. And I think that if you take the United States out of the equation, most Canadians have that sensibility and they have that awareness. And, you know, it's, it's there. It's just... Um, I don't think we've really found a way to celebrate it in a way that resonates with all Canadians. Share with us some of the ideas that you've got. 
Well, I want the Academy to become a year-round marketing vehicle for excellence in Canadian content. So what that means is that we will we will we, we scour the country and uh, the media industry and we pull out uh, those really, really excellent um, pieces of content or technical innovations or you know pieces of the craft that are coming out of our um, country right now and elevate them and market that to Canadians in the way that you would market anything else. So I find that when we talk about Canadian content, we we don't go any further than talking, like when Telefilm or uh, Canadian Media Fund or any of our institutions talk about Canadian content, they're just, you know, they just say, it's great because it's Canadian. And actually, if you look at it in a more sophisticated way, it's great because the, you know, those, the special effects are far beyond anything we've seen in years. So it's highlighting, but so it's highlighting both what we're doing from a craft, but it's also champions, uh, filmmakers. Yes, absolutely. It's highlighting those who are really doing work that is really sophisticated and, and, and world-class. And we, I just, in reading the media here, the mainstream media in Canada spends a lot of time slagging Canadian content and a lot less time talking about find or highlighting Canadian content that might be a little bit more obscure, mm -hmm. but is exceptional, you know. And is there programming that can be done? So again, maybe without telling us what the rebrand, how, how will you go about doing that? It makes great sense, by the way. A, will it also take money? So will you have to be fundraising to put some of this programming in place? And then B, once you've got the money, what's the programming to make it happen? So I don't want to reinvent the wheel. Uh, there are, I don't want us to be a paid platform or a platform for any of this. I just want to be able to not just say this is incredible, but this is incredible and this is where you go to watch it on iTunes or, you know, on this platform or that platform. So to close that loop, I just think a lot of our marketing is not doesn't close the loop. It doesn't have a real call to action, you know. Um and no Canadian is going to be like, oh, yeah, I should go and sit in a theater and watch this show for two hours because it's Canadian. Mm -hmm. They just won't. You know, you you have to say, look, this is an incredible story about, you know, two people in the middle of the woods. I'm just saying this because that could be the plot of a lot of Canadian um, <laughs> Canadian storytelling. But um, you need to be able to take and really listen to what that artist is trying to say and translate that. So you've hit on something. And if you said it earlier, I missed it. Storytelling. Good storytelling. There is great storytelling in this country that we are not talking about. But there is a lot of storytelling that needs uh, to be honed. And if you're a young person and you see the only thing that you see as being um, Canadian is maybe not necessarily the best Canadian, then that's what you're going to try and live up to. So I'm like, the more we highlight the most sophisticated and creative Canadian storytelling, that sets an example for our young people to aspire to. Um, so it's, it's sort of a cycle. I do think we need to do a lot more work um, in this country uh, in writing. Um, f for the screen, I think um, if I were going to say where should we be putting our most most of our energy, I would say it would be in writing that is um, 
that is true, that is uh, realistic, that is not theatrical. Again, I'm hearing programming. Programming's coming through my mind. So your hope is and your your mandate is to create some of the programming that would, for example, in writing, allow young writers to participate? Yes, we are definitely looking at programs that we can do that would be uh, more of mentorship style um, programs. Yeah, we're, we're looking that we don't do that right now. We The Academy used to do um, more of that programming. And I am looking for um, funders and people who might be interested in supporting the next generation of what those mentorships look like. We've also talked about the star system. So really, it's it's highlighting in film and television. But in Canada, the star system could extend itself beyond film and television to other multimedia. multimedia. For example, Lily Singh is a YouTube star. But is there any place to recognize her now? Mm-hmm. Uh, and how do we change that system to recognize these other people that are doing remarkable things in digital? Yeah, so we, this year, we're launching a new uh, award. Um, we're, we've launched a few new digital awards, but we're also doing a gala that is only for digital and immersive programming. Fabulous. Um, so that will include a Social Innovator Award, which is a which is a fan's choice award, basically for someone who's using social media in a very um, creative way uh, to tell their story. Uh, we are doing a virtual reality award for the first um, time in our history. Um, we we recognize uh, talent that is, um, you know, in shows and uh, and stories that, that have only been created to be uh, that don't have a broadcaster, a traditional broadcaster, being created solely to be um, online. Canada is unique in that we can have both. We can have um, you know people who live here and are successful here. You know, I'm thinking about the tragically hip. You know, um, I think that that what happened this year in Canada with the tragically hip was really um, important because when I was growing up, this, the conversation was always like, oh, are they going to make it big in the U.S.? Are mm-hmm. they going to make it big in the U.S.? And that's no longer relevant. You know, and I think... The music industry, if anywhere, that has this broken down barriers with, you know, Shawn Mendes and Drake and Justin Bieber, it doesn't really matter anymore, does it? No. And these are... I mean, we love to think of them as Canadian because they are, and we're very proud of that. Mm-hmm. And someone like Drake, I guess, is great because he's great for the city of Toronto, but he's also mm-hmm. great for Canada. But I don't think you would have gotten a Drake or a Weekend anywhere else in the world. You know, a son of Ethiopian immigrants, I'm talking about the Weekend now, um, you know, raised in a city who comes to have a really unique voice in terms of um, sexuality, you know, like so much of his earlier stuff, it's very much about um, sexuality in a way that we haven't, that was really fresh and new, you know, for me as a woman, it was really, you know, it's more of an egalitarian kind of approach and to it. And I don't think where, where would you, you know, where would you find that? So is it so is this a nod to Canada to say the openness of our culture has enabled allowed that kind of allowed is the wrong word um, has helped make that happen? Yes, absolutely. So how are we doing as Canadians with this whole issue of we'll say diversity in in what the challenge you have ahead? We are not doing much better in terms of the number of women who write and direct um, 
you know, stuff in our country. But the sort of within a year of that information coming out, uh, Telefilm had said that they're going to, you know, they're getting to 50% parity. CBC is going to have 50% parity. I saw that in some of the directing that they're going to do with the Murdoch Mysteries and some of the yep, other. Yeah, it's going to be 50% women. Then the NFB has said that, you know, 50% of their funding will go to women. And I'm just like, okay, this is insane. You know, like, that doesn't happen anywhere else. Like, that is such a great response. And of course, we have to be vigilant and we have to be realistic and we have to watch and make sure that these people follow through on what they say they're going to do. But that's fantastic. Should we say the same thing about uh, people's backgrounds and, you know, a diversity of representation? Yes, absolutely we should. Um, because we see what happens when, you know, when, when, you, when you sort of, uh, you know, when you don't do that, basically. And what, what role can, can the Academy have in all of that? Um, you know, we are just being, uh, my big mandate is that you are going to be as inclusionary and diverse as the people you engage and the people who work who you work with right so if you only work with you know straight white men above the age of 40 probably the majority of whatever it is they're selecting is going to be looking more will look more like them than anything else and so we make it you know, I'm pushing hard on everyone. And, um, you know, people on our staff here have done this for years to make sure that our juries are, um, you know, have at least 50% women. Um, some of our juries are 100% women this year, um, that we have a diversity of backgrounds represented on those juries. That's part of what we're doing. Um, to help ensure that, you know, there's a there's a diverse slate of excellence from which to sort of highlight. What I'm talking about with this rebrand, it's more of a qualitative change in how Canadians think about their own artists. Coming into Canada's 150, um, is there any tie-in with what your group is doing? Uh, great way, great opportunity to be starting to put some messaging out. Is there any tie-in there at all in the rebrand? Yeah, I um, I think <laughs> it's interesting because every year is our Canada's 150 because we are looking to celebrate the best that Canada has. So um, I don't think in terms of the Canadian Screen Awards we'll have anything big and different that's happening. But um, we have proposed this program um, to the government to fund, which um, we're calling Story Hat Canada Um which would take seminal scenes from Canadian films or televisions and uh, television shows and digitize them and then bring them to teams of young people across the country for them to hack. So, you know, cut up and edit and reshoot and the scenes to make them more reflective of their experience as young Canadians now. Um, and the goal there is not to necessarily like, you know, come out with these, um, sophisticated, incredible pieces of storytelling, but rather to use storytelling as a vehicle for intergenerational conversation. Cool. Great. So I don't know if we're going to get funded for that, but if we don't... You said you're fundraising. I don't think there's going to be any problem. <laughs> I don't know. I don't you're know. You're going to crush that one. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> okay, then here's my final question. One piece of advice for Canadians striving to be the very best that they can be in their field, in their craft, that you would, you would give them? Don't believe the hype. Uh, make up your own mind about what resonates with you um, and take the time 
take time. I think this, our, our culture right now is so much about speed and quickness and skimming and shortening and like snackable content. I hate that term so much, but it's so true that we forget how to spend time with a piece of writing or how to spend time with a film. And um, it's just, that's what I would say is just take time and, and invest your time into what it is you're doing or watching. And that will ultimately reap huge rewards for the sophistication of what you ultimately create. Fantastic. Beth, you're a great Canadian. You're embarking you. on a significant and important opportunity. And a Canada crush, we wish you nothing but success. Thanks for your time, Beth. Okay. Thank you so okay. much. Bye. Bye.